Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. Excited to have Ian Kenny and Chris Yu from Specialized Bikes on today talking about how incumbent manufacturers are thinking about micromobility and catering to the new jobs to be done that these vehicles can solve. Before I get into that, I want to remind folks to check out Micromobility Membership, or Triple M, where you get access to exclusive webinars and calls talking about all manner of things in the micromobility industry. If you listen to this and want a community to go and talk to who understand the significance of the space, come and join us. Details are at micromobility.io. In terms of news, it's been a great week for political advocates of micromobility, with Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo winning a resounding re-election victory this weekend, granting her a mandate to expand her crusade against private cars. For her second term, the environmentalist leader has vowed to eliminate almost all street parking and reduce the speed to 30 kilometres an hour in the city centre. She has also promised to make temporary cycleways and pedestrianised streets that were built during the pandemic permanent. There is hope that she will inspire other leaders to follow around the world. Next up, California regulators approved a first-of-its-kind rule that will require 40% of its tractor trailers, 55% of light trucks, and 75% of delivery trucks and vans sold in the state to be zero emission by 2035. It is a bit of a boon for the Cybertruck which I'm sure Horace will be absolutely stoked about. And finally, the UK is going to start allowing scooter rentals this weekend for the first time, noting, as I did in the last dispatch, that they're still requiring all users to have driver's licenses. Also, interestingly enough, as it has emerged in the last week, personally owned scooters will continue to be banned in the UK. I'm hoping to get someone on to talk about the situation if you do have a connection there, if you're listening to the show and think, I know just the person to talk to, please send me a DM on Twitter and we can get that all lined up. Also, if you're a long-time listener, I have a very small ask for you. It would be very useful and meaningful if you are able to write a review for the show on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen. I love hearing about how we can make this thing better and who we should interview. Uh, it also helps as well bring attention to the podcast for those others who might not know about it but would like to discover it your attention as always is much appreciated and i hope that you like what we do here and with that here's ian and chris all right and welcome back to micromobility uh, i have with us today uh, ian kenny the lead for global marketing at the turbo e-bike brand and chris Yu, who's the chief product officer and uh, innovation officer at specialized how are you guys going today great Thanks doing for great me, yeah yeah, excited to be here. Oh, I'm very excited to have you on, um, mainly because I think this is, um, you know, this this certainly is an area that we've been talking a lot about in the, the, the sort of, as we think about owned micromobility and, and the space that the incumbent bike makers have been occupying. Um, we've, we've obviously focused a lot. We've gone and interviewed Van Moof and we've interviewed some others in that space and we've got a lot more coming uh, in, in that. But I really wanted to talk through, uh, Ian and I have actually been talking for a little while, haven't we, um, about yeah. uh, how you guys think about this space. And um, so I'm very excited, very excited to, to dig in today. Um, I thought probably what would be useful um, would be if we just, you know, I didn't know a heap about Specialized before I began this. I, I don't, I haven't bought a bike for a while. So um, it was a news to me about how you guys operate. So I thought maybe either of you could just take us through sort of Specialized, where you operate, what sort of bikes you offer, kind of just kind of give the general overview of, of you as a, as, a mic, as a bike maker. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. This is Ian. I'm happy to start. Um, and Chris, chime in because you've got more, uh, more tenure than I do. I'm still the new guy. No worries. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Go for it. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things, so you mentioned it, Oliver, but, uh, you know, Specialized has been making, uh, you know, bikes and components and um, really high quality accessories since 1974. Um, so when we talk about kind of heritage, uh, the company has it. It's uh, founder-led and privately held still. So Mike Sinyard, who Chris and I have the, the pleasure of working with on almost a daily basis, sometimes hourly, right? Um, we, uh, <laughs> you know, really started the company um, 
you know, in what is a, a really kind of, I don't want to say prototypical founder fashion, but um, really authentic. You know, he was a writer, um, really wanted, still is a writer, I should say, um, really wanted to have better quality components, better quality gear and better quality bikes to be riding. Sold his VW bus um, here in California for 1500 bucks, went on a trip over to Europe and realized, holy shit. <laughs> I can get way better stuff here. Um, and so, you know, really that was sort of the genesis of what would eventually become specialized was, you know, Mike uh, hand delivering actually with a trailer on the back of a bike all over the Bay Area components that he was importing from from Europe. And that turned into, um, you know, him and a small team really kind of building out the earliest capabilities, which was, you know, largely focused around, um, tires and water bottles and other kinds of accessories that he would sell directly into to bike shops. Um, and out of that has spawned, um, you know, what we sort of think about as, you know, this this innovation production and kind of distribution engine that, that we've built today. And I think what's interesting is, you know, you kind of mentioned us as, you know, the incumbents. And in many ways, um, you know, I think people don't know a lot about our brand. And so, you know, we were very excited to kind of have this conversation. You've got a lot of closet, um, by the way, fans in, in our ranks in the office of the work <laughs> you're doing on, on the podcast and that you and Horace have been leading. Because I think, you know, as writers and as people who, you know, think a lot about how to move in active ways and especially on two wheels, um, you know, it's a conversation that I think the, the, the bigger players in the industry sort of haven't, um, shared as much on. So we're excited to do that today, but happy to share more. And Chris, I don't know if there are other, you know, you've got some great examples of some of the early stuff um, or some of the stuff that we're best known for. No, that, that was really good, Ian. Um, yeah, the only thing I would add is is um, it's been kind of incredible because uh, I kind of referred to Mike as our chief disruption officer. And he's just, he's just shown a knack to do it over the history of the brand and the company. And one of the great examples is in the 80s with the mountain bikes. It almost seems like, well, duh, mountain bikes. But in the 80s, um, people are like, what the hell are you doing? Like, bikes are a serious thing. Like, what, why are you making these things to go off trails? And then he saw something that was a new opportunity and a new way of bringing cycling to a completely different audience than existed before. And time and time again, whether it's that, then into road and ultimately into um the e-bike segment, he's kind of shown the knack to be earlier than a lot of other people and in making the call to invest in that area, which I think is is incredible. The only other thing that I would add about the brand, because um, Oliver, you asked about it earlier in terms of our positioning and what we stand for. And the two things I would say, and they're captured pretty well in, in our mission and founding principle, are that um, we, uh, we're the brand where we, we seek to earn the position as a brand of choice for the discerning rider. And that word for us is pretty interesting because it's, it's not in any way to say um, we're only looking for bike nerds that know everything about bikes. No, discerning means uh, the type of person that would appreciate a detail that the average person may not even notice, but really truly makes the experience better. And that leads into our founding principle, which it sounds like it's just like a statement, but it truly is something that at least on the product team, we actually discuss quite a bit in terms of guiding our decisions which is everything that we do is centered around how do we create technically advanced product that provide performance benefit. It's a simple statement, but it's it's a lot higher of a bar than, than it sounds when it comes to product decisions day to day. Yeah. And I'll just say, I think, you know, one of the things for me coming to Specialized and, you know, having ridden a lot of what's out there in e-bike land, um, you know, the kinds of things that, that Chris is talking about, and I think the level of focus and frankly, the experience um, that the team has, you can feel um, that difference when, when you ride. And that's, I think, a big part of what drives everything that we do. It's a, it's a building and team full of riders. You know, we operate in, I believe it's over 100 countries. We have teammates from over 140 countries. Um, yeah, roughly a full-time team of, um, Chris, do you have the number? I don't even know how big we are anymore. Not huge. Um, it's uh, about 1,600 people globally. 
across right. 30 right. plus right. offices. With, yeah. With then quite a broad, uh, you know, obviously network of, of retail partners that we work with uh, internationally. And so I think the, you know, the big piece for us is how do we, how do we create bikes that, you know, to, to Chris's point, um, you might not know why it feels so great to ride, um, but we've taken the care and the time to focus on the detail. And I think you, we'll get into it in this discussion, I'm sure. But um, when it comes to, you know, electric, um, there's there's a lot of room there. Uh, but we've been fortunate enough to make bikes for some of the most discerning riders, um, you know, to ever jump on two and wheels. So when you say discerning, because <laughs> the thing that I the thing that I get when I hear discerning is like, okay, so you're more expensive, which is which is true because when I've looked at you, like you typically sit in the higher end of that bracket, right? Which is interesting because I think, you know, um, certainly if if, if, you, if any, I mean, a lot of the listeners here will know Horace obviously quite in depth, but um, uh, Horace's kind of point is that actually the interest that's an interesting part of the market that isn't typically particularly well served necessarily, um, and and that. Um, especially as we think, obviously he's focused on Apple and the fact that they've gone kind of higher end for their iPhone strategy and then they've built stuff around it and that, that in and of itself is, those are the customers that you want. Those are the discerning, the discerning customers are the ones that you want anyway. Um, and they allow you to do technological advances. Um, they, they are, um, they, they give you, um, obviously it's, it's a higher revenue, you have a nicer business in that, in that end of the, of the market. I think that's a, sorry, I mean, just to jump in there, I think that's a great point. And, and just to say it, uh, you're not wrong, but we don't, we don't go out and seek to be, say, a luxury brand. Uh, what we do is, is we, we always, always try to earn the premium, the value. And that's what we mean by discerning, where um, we know the details that differentiate a ride experience. And that's where we try to build it in into the product. And so... That, that's kind of like what we're looking to bring to the market, not just a, a luxury brand, just for the sake of, of doing that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. Well, look, I, 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 the part that I really want to dig in on um, that I think is, you know, based on the conversation that you and I had, Ian, uh, is, is to really understand that kind of the idea that you have around full stack and, and really um, are kind of unpacking that. So maybe to, to understand that, I need to understand how the traditional bike industry works. Um, and, and maybe if you could kind of talk through that for, for the average person who might be coming to this knowing only really about scooters and maybe a little bit about bikes, but not that really, really that much. How much, how does the traditional industry work? And then how have you, how does Specialized do that differently? Yeah. Chris, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll give the quick primer. Um, the vast majority of the industry and pretty much the entire industry, I would say there's almost two separate industries that merge together in the product, which is you have um, the bike brands that, that create the frames and the chassis and you have the technology players that create the motors and the batteries and everything that makes it all work together. And traditionally the latter has been a spec just like a derailleur or a crank or another component is a spec on a bike. And a bike product manager puts them together. And that's, that's really what has built the e-bike industry um, over the last decade plus. And what we decided effectively from day one to do was um, to be a fully integrated vertical development um, company where we brought in-house the design of the tech stack as well. And the reason why is a lot of people know quite why, because that seems really complicated and frankly a large investment. And it wasn't for any egotistical reason where it's like we just had to control every piece and make it. Is because um, what we've learned over our 46 year history is that um, the experience that you have on the bike, small details matter and they make or break the experience. And we also recognize that at the end of the day, just like we're seeing in other industries, things like motors and batteries, they're becoming commodity items. There's not a lot of differentiation and how they feel to the rider comes down to small details in terms of controllers, software and things like that. Not to mention the physical integration of where all those pieces sit in the chassis. And so we recognize early on, there's no way for us to be able to craft, really craft the experience that our riders get without being able to have our hands on every single piece of the equation, including the tech stack. Cool, anything to add there, Ian? Yeah, I mean, I'd just say, I think beyond, um, you know, just the sort of the bike that you you see presented in front of you, right? Um, we've we've taken a very similar approach when it comes to the digital products that we that we also uh, you know sort of develop in house and and how they work with with the bike and with the rider and what's the overall experience that we're trying to provide. Um, I would say as I was looking at you know kind of 
joining the company roughly a year ago um, and having my initial discussions with Chris and team, um, you know, it really reminded me and not surprisingly, you know, the companies have sort of a, a fun kind of side working relationship of some of what I had you know, observed in my early days at Tesla, which was a, a real desire not to, as Chris pointed out, you know, necessarily do everything yourself and always take the hard way. But if you're trying to design for a given experience or you're trying to create something that is unique and differentiated, you really do want to have influence and, and greater control over the, over the various pieces. And that's, you know, a harder way to go. Could you talk to that? Because I mean, that, that, that I think was part of the, you know, when you and I started talking and you were talking about your background at Tesla and then at Lyft and uh, onto Specialized, um, that struck me as quite different to anybody else in the same way that Tesla is kind of quite disruptive in some ways to the way that the uh, distributor network works for their, for, their, for their vehicles and then how they've thought about servicing and then where the value capture is there uh, and then how... In some ways, right, that's like what Specialized is thinking about as it moves towards uh, into this kind of e-bike sector. Um, so, yeah, are you able to talk to that at all? Just so I'm clear, the, the question is really kind of what are some of the parallels between what I've seen uh, at Specialized and, and at Tesla? Well, I think more than anything, just explaining for the for the audience as well about your background. Yeah, not everybody sure, uh, sure. fully understands that. Yeah, yeah, of course, nobody knows me. Um, so, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, point... So I got into this whole world of, you know, bikes and cars and electric stuff, um, really actually, you know, in sort of a, a backwards way, I would say. I, I was a middle and high school teacher and was really kind of looking out at um, my room full of students and um, asking the question, how can I better prepare this group of young people to inherit a world that is going to be fundamentally different than... Um, it is today. And that's always true, but it's going to be increasingly true when confronted with the realities of climate change. And as I sort of went down that path, it became very clear to me that, you know, the, the, the way that we move the, you know, the sort of cultural innovations that would be required to change the ways that we move and the products that were going to help to drive that transition, the people, the companies, the leadership that it would take, the um, interaction and in, intersection between commerce and government, all of that, right, um, was going to have to fundamentally change. And so I wanted to see what that looked like from the inside. So that's really what took me to Tesla. Um, this was in 2012, just as the, the first Model S's were kind of rolling out into the world. And, um, you know, what happened after that was um, a pretty wild ride. I mean, we when I joined, it was about 1,100 people. When I left, we were somewhere in the realm of 30,000 to 40,000 globally. Um, and really, you know, the, the project, like I mentioned before, was as much about cultural innovation as it was about technological innovation. And by that, I mean um, the experience, the, um, the you know, um, sort of feeling that you gave people when they encountered this new piece of technology, be it even for a moment or an instant, seeing it on the street, having a chance to get in one, or if you know you were fortunate enough to, to buy one and own one. And I think that what we what I learned through that was uh, that, you know, this what we were on to something, A, <laughs> uh, understatement of the century right now. Um, but I think that the bigger piece was that it wasn't going to end or stop with the car. Um, and, and I always sort of knew that. And so I think once we got to the point where we were no longer, you know, getting laughed out of the Detroit auto show and being told that, you know, an electric car could never be successful. Um, and instead we, we were sort of declining going to auto shows because it seemed like we could be doing better things with our time. Um, and everybody else had an electric program that was getting built. Um, I really wanted to go and understand, you know, what what did networked solutions look like? What did shared solutions look like? And that's what took me to Lyft ultimately, where I held a variety of, of roles working in both our marketing and operations programs. Um, I think 
that experience at Lyft um, really helped to illuminate the you know unique opportunities as well as challenges that are presented within um, urban and near urban environments uh, with regards to how we move and you know this focus on sort of the the trip and the short trip and all of the impact that we can drive by changing the mode even you know some reasonable percentage of the time for those shorter trips um you know the the macro impact of that mode shift is is just huge and so um i think you know looking out at the world i think there's always going to be a place probably for um for shared solutions however it became increasingly clear to me that you know in the same way that people want to own and experience uh, a vehicle uh, in the form of a car that says something about who they are, that gives them an experience that is unique and differentiated, um, they would eventually want that same thing. And we we're starting to see that transition already happen in some of the more mature markets when it came to you know, smaller vehicles and smaller modes. And so looking out at, at the sort of landscape, you know, the question then became, well, who can do this at scale? And who can do this in a way that is um, truly unique? And I think that when you ask that question, you know, there really aren't huge players um, that pop into mind immediately, right? There's a lot of smaller um, startups which are doing phenomenal things, and there is this sort of ground up. And this specifically, you mean uh, like owned micro mobility? Yeah, owned micro mobility. And specifically, I was really interested in the bike, right? Because I think active modes of transportation are. Um, I think particularly approachable, they're incredibly compelling, they're really efficient, they have this unique balance that you can sort of strike between, yes, it's a more efficient and affordable way to get around, but it also has this unique, you know, and almost intangible benefit of what it does for you as a human being in terms of, you know, your mental and physical health, Um, things that we're actually now sort of, you know, studying in partnership with, with research universities to understand exactly what is happening when you're riding a bike. Why is it that when you arrive at your destination, you feel incredible, um, even if you're getting assistance to get there. So I think when it when it came to the decision to join, you know, the specialized team, uh, you know, I was very straightforward in saying, um, I don't think we're there yet when it comes to meeting this much bigger opportunity around owned micromobility. And I think that there's a lot more work to do as we're seeing happen in the market, right, with various form factors and vehicles and types and approaches and business models. That's going to happen for, you know, I think an extended period of time. Um, But who are the players that I think have the resources, have the team and have the ability to scale um, that could do really interesting and and meaningful things uh, for this space? And so that's kind of what what took me to specialized. And I've been really encouraged by the degree to which. You know, while the team has a roadmap and definitely has a focus and, uh, you know, areas that they've they've driven hard on in the past, uh, I think the other piece that I've just been incredibly, you know, encouraged and humbled by, frankly, is, is how ready and willing this team is to sort of build the kind of culture within the walls of Specialized that I think it's going to take to drive the kind of outcomes that we're going to start to see over the next, you know, three, five, six, seven, ten onward years. Yeah, because I want to unpack that because I think, and, so, and this is a question for both of you, but but really it's sort of, you know, incumbents traditionally have struggled to transition across from, like, as new technologies have come in, right? And you can see this now even with, like, auto manufacturers, um, they really kind of see themselves as selling cars and they don't see themselves as selling a thing that provides people with the opportunity to do kilometers, right? And so it's that um, that mental shift um of of saying like no i mean i think ford kind of starting to get it you know they sell there's like the market for miles that horace oftentimes talks about um for you guys i mean in some ways right you you came into this you were selling high-end sport and mountain bikes and 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 then sort of electric has kind of come up on you and in some ways it's a sustaining innovation to your traditional business but in some ways as well it's like quite a challenge there's a it's a, it's a whole different sort of set of things that you have to think about how does the change like how do you think it about changing the job to be done of customers that you're dealing with and what are the challenge challenges that you're seeing in terms of pivoting the company to be able to accommodate for this versus you know your more traditional customer and bike businesses as as, as it stand yeah maybe i'll go uh ian first then Chris. sure <laughs> um i, I so 
Yes. Is there work to be done in terms of kind of bringing an internal culture along on a on a change? Definitely, there's a change management sort of job to be done um, within the company, and I think that that's you know reflected by you know the team's willingness and, and appetite to bring folks like myself on board who are willing to kind of help to drive new perspectives into the organization that um, you know maybe it's it's lacking. But at the same time, I think uh, you know your question is is really well taken around you know is it the auto industry is in some ways kind of an imperfect example uh you know comparison point to i think what's happening in the cycling industry right now um i think when you when you look at what how traditional automakers have i think approached the you know the sort of market for miles or kilometers like you've talked about um I think that the the leap is not as large for uh, a bike company. You know, yes, Specialized is best known for its ability to, you know, get a a Tour de France rider on the podium uh, by shaving, you know, a a small number of grams off of it and adding a, you know, suspension system that you can hardly see into the, the head tube. By the way, those are incredibly difficult, incredibly hard things to do, and Specialized has historically been the first to drive those kinds of innovations into sport. I think what uh, I've also seen, though, is that if you actually trace back to specialized sort of, you know, first steps into, you know, e-mobility or the electric game, it was actually with a bike uh, called the Turbo S. And this, you know, started in 2010, which was quite early for, you know, a, a bigger bike company or frankly anybody to be making something that was a fully realized electric bike. And by that, I mean fully integrated, you know, this was rear hub, like crazy performance, but it was a flat bar, you know, commute style road machine. And it wasn't meant for the performance or enthusiast rider. It was, you know, a bunch of people in a room who, you know, love bikes and saw what the, what technologies were available and said, holy shit, we can build that. Like, let's do it. And so they went and did it. And I think what was really interesting about that program is that it was almost ahead of its time um, in terms of, you know, the market's willingness and consumers and riders willingness to, to, you know, A, spend the kind of money on something like that. It was still viewed more in, you know, regards of a, of an expensive toy versus a relatively affordable and high performance vehicle. And I think as we've started to see that transition happen, we're seeing two things take place. One is I think, you know, we're seeing new riders meeting us, you know, as a, as a brand for the first time, riding an electric bike for the first time that they've either, either ever ridden a bike or ridden a bike in, you know, since they were a kid. Um, we're also seeing people who are performance and enthusiast riders who are used to and comfortable being on a bike make the jump into adding a bike as part of how they move for trips that they otherwise wouldn't have realized on a bike. So they might have gone out and done a, you know, a hundred mile century ride uh, on the weekend, but they still would have been climbing in their SUV to go do the five minute trip down the road to get their groceries. And I think that combination has really, you know, started to, you know, we saw it happening first really at at the retail level and in speaking with, you know, the people who were seeing this on the ground, you know, interacting with riders the most. And I think what we're realizing is that it's actually not an either or, it's a both and. And that's the conversation that's happening internally is that, you know, if our mission as a company is to pedal the planet forward, which is something that we've used internally forever, uh, we believe that the power of the bike is profound and that it has, you know, an ability to to do things for people and planet that, you know, almost no other machine can uh, collectively, you know, this this whole project um, is stand, stands to benefit everybody. So I think that internal change uh, project has has not been as hard as I anticipated. But certainly, when I send them, you know, things from the micromobility crew, um, <laughs> I sometimes I sometimes get you know like, come on, <laughs> like what what is this nerdy shit? Can you can we just go ride? <laughs> not anymore. Yeah, no, no, not anymore. Fair Early enough. on. Fair sure. Yeah. 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 No, I would, the only thing I would add to that is, um, and I'm biased, but uh, I'm incredibly optimistic at our ability to adapt, really for just for two reasons. One, the, the first one is simple, which is it's in our DNA. And I talked about it a few minutes ago with all the way back to mountain bikes. 
and any other trends and all the way through to Mike, our founder, we're not really afraid of just completely blowing it up and aligning with a new rider demand and cultural moment at all. And we've had a history of doing that. But then the other thing I think more importantly is, you know, with any new segment category, um, whatever you want to call it, it comes down to me maybe oversimplifying a couple of things. It's like, do we have the vision, the motivation, and then the capability? And to Ian's point before the capability, um, very, very confident in that because when we're talking about innovation within the space, it's very, very analogous, certainly much more so to performance bikes than in automotive or anything else when you're talking about integration of motor systems, software, the chassis, um, dynamics, suspension, things like that. So the capability is for sure there. Then we talk about motivation and vision. Um, as a brand, again, our DNA is, is always aligned with what the cultural moments are from riders, and that, that creates the vision. And motivation, to Ian's point, we're all fans of, of micromobility, and uh, many of us, I'm not abnormal a, a here. I have a Dutch basket bike, and uh, that is like our family vehicle, pretty much, right? And, and many of us are, are living that lifestyle. And so when you combine all those ingredients into one basket, I, I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to make the change quickly. Mm. Um, f- for you, Chris, I, I, I mean, from a product perspective, what are the variables? You, so you mentioned you own like the Dutch bike and then you, I, I assume you, you like many of the, uh, many, many people probably own multiple bikes. How do you think through from a product perspective, the variables that matter for customers with design? Cause I think about, I'm at the moment I'm looking for an e-bike, um, and I've been going through, you know, the journey of okay so i've been and ridden everything that specialized has i really like your stuff but there's sort of a a couple of small things that don't quite work for me i you know uh, and then but i haven't really found a bike that kind of quite fits exactly what i need um and i'm kind of curious about how do you think about you know um the trade-offs and the and the feature sets that are important and then also as well i'm kind of curious just out of you know is there a bike that's the biggest seller and then do you know why that is like what are the what are sort of What's mm. the big thing, the selling points that, that kind of come up for those bikes? Yeah, you just you mean across the brand. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense, yeah. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, what we generally start with is, uh, this sounds almost too simple, but um, what problem are we trying to solve and for who? Um, because it's a really easy, um, especially for, for me and any of the people in the product team, to start with a cool new innovation or gadget or technology or whatever and be like, let's create a bike around that. That's awesome. Um, and we always fail when we do that. Um, but where we're the most successful and we create really, really great experiences are we identify a rider, whether it's some, one of us or, or someone else, and uh, go very deep on the problems that they have. And so the example, and to answer your question of what's been very successful for us to date is our Levo family, which is our performance e-mountain bike. And uh, e-mountain bikes um, for the longest time have been kind of um, just this huge um, science experiment where they're like either too heavy or they're not very smooth. And when you're on a technical trail and you're pedaling, the power just kicks in at the wrong time and you get sent off the trail. And in a way that experience tilts the balance back to, well, I don't really want an electric bike because of all those compromises. And so the problem we're trying to solve there is how do we make just the best mountain bike, period, period. And it just happens to be electric and you get all the benefit of that. <clears throat> and so that landed, by the way, our, our tagline of it's you only faster, right? For us, it's very, very important that it disappears behind and it's just augmenting the entire experience. And so when you go and look into um, things like solving for transportation or really the intersection for us of fitness and transportation, it's how do we take that same mentality of what the rider is? And yeah, do we have work to do to identify all the different riders? Yes, of, of course, like fully admit that. But the exact same playbook of identifying who the pro- riders are, what the problems are to solve. And then in doing all of that, making sure that as we're coming up with the solutions that we don't tilt the balance, in this case, back towards the car for those riders. And so making sure that it's not overtaxed, overly burdensome, that um, it's just a pain in the ass to live with. Like no one wants that. And so for us... We really lean our, on our innovation heritage to be able to come up with the unique solutions that, that really can allow us to be successful in a differentiated way within this space. Yeah, because I think a lot about the area of urban biking and, you know, you've got the specialized uh, Turbo SL, which you've just launched, which is a sort of very lightweight bike. Um, I've interviewed uh, Taco, Van Mo- uh, Taco from, from, from Van Moof, uh twice on the, on the podcast, and I really like their model um, because it's it's built, I mean, 
it's no surprise it came out of the Netherlands who have been thinking about urban biking for sort of a very long period of time. They've got, um, but they've really thought through the sort of job to be done of everything. So one, it's built as an urban bike. They only have two models. Um, it's, you know, there's a, the bike itself, there's no derailleur, like all of that stuff is integrated. So people can't come along and kind of mess with it. They've got a locking system that they've got a tracking, like a GPS tracking system and a service that people can come if the bike gets nicked you know, uh, or stolen, it can be, they've got people to go and track it down for you and give it back to you. Um, you know, they've kind of thought through all of those different aspects. And when I look at your offerings in that space, it's, you know, it's, you're still in the sort of like, I'm, you, you, you've got a, a bike that you're assuming someone is going to use at home, go out and come back to the house because you don't, you know, things like derailleurs, you've still got it. It's, it's subject to theft. If, you know, you've got this, the app and things like that. But how how would you th- how are you thinking about that space? How are you thinking about it if you were to go? Because I, I hear you about the sort of high end e bike and the mountain bike space. Because that's that's very recreational. But as we think about them moving towards utility and that these bikes are going to be the predominant form primary vehicles for cities, um, how are you thinking through that problem? Seth? Chris, can I take a first swing on this? And, and yeah, please yeah. come in. I know. I'm, Stealing product talk from the product team is is scary. So Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, let me let me think about this because just because Chris and I have been working on it a lot together recently, Um, I I think the one of the things I'll just point out is you know Chris mentioned our kind of Levo family of bikes, and this is you know I I think in this arena of the mobility conversation, they often get sort of written off as like cool, expensive toys, recreational tools, right? Totally. That being said, one of the things that I just want to point out is that the demands that are placed on the kind of mountain bike that a professional rider would ride at the speeds, with the forces, on the terrain, in the way that they would want to ride that bike to actually go and spend $12,000 on it, which is who is buying those bikes now, not just somebody who wants to you know, have an easier time going uphill requires a kind of focus and dedication to quality, durability, all of the things that you would want out of a bike that you would use as your daily commuter or as your A to B or as your go-to for local transportation. And so I think the, you know, interesting thing that you just hit right on the head is like we right now straddle, I think largely because of who's been in the building, um, this line between fitness and transportation because we have been a brand and we have focused primarily on solving jobs for people who are riding for sport, recreation, exploration, or all of the other reasons that you could ride a bike. That with the SL system, so the Turbo Vado SL is the the bike that you referenced recently, we were actually able to develop a much lighter platform and sort of overall motor system through the mountain program first that was then applied, well, through the road program, I should say, first. Then it was applied through uh, mountain and now to sort of fitness and transportation. So we've solved one job with with this motor system for the kind of rider that you're talking about, which is weight, right? Can I carry this up and into my apartment now? Yes, I can. I can also get, you know, up to 120 miles of range out of that. Have I solved every problem for that rider? No, definitely not. And I think credit where credit's due, the team at Van Move have been super focused on a really specific rider set, right? To your point, they're solving for a, an urban rider who probably uses an iPhone, who thinks Tesla's cool, searches these terms on Google. It's like, it's very focused. And I think that that's great. Um, and where we are headed, I think in the very near future is to take everything that we've learned from the sort of higher end recreation and sport um, focused bikes that we have. And we're now going to apply that same level of intentionality and focus around you know, the kind of riders that you're talking about. And I think one thing I'll I'll also just point out is I think a lot of this discussion has been focused on urban. And I think for understandable reasons, 
I actually think it can be a confusing and misleading term, however, because what we're actually more focused on is local transportation, which is, uh, you know, it's really a radius from wherever you happen to find your center. What we are learning and what we know is that, you know, e-bikes that are used for transportation and utility are not only being purchased in sort of dense urban cores or even the periphery of a city. Um, You know, we're finding these, you know, use cases for them on ranches and the suburbs and yes, in cities. And so as we think about this, a big part of what we're going to try to do and already are doing, um, and you're going to see rapid progress on this in the next, you know, well, we can talk about that on a future show. Um, is, <laughs> yes, indeed. Is, no, I can't is, wait. <laughs> you know, a, a really sort of fully realized line that that addresses local transportation and and as the primary focus. And so that's really what we've spent our time doing is kind of building these insight engines for getting at the exact kinds of questions that that you're asking. And you know, something that. I learned in, in my time at Tesla, which was interesting, right? And I think shows in, in what they've been able to realize is when you talk to the product team at Tesla about who the, the Model 3 is for, they're not going to give you a, a demographic answer, right? Like I drive a Model 3. Um, my mom drives a Model 3. We both love the car. We, are, we couldn't be more different as human beings. Um, and that's because it, it solves different needs for, for each of us, but it solves them really, really well. And I think that um, you know, that's what I've been really encouraged by with this team is that, yes, we will be focused in, in the job to be solved, but we're going to be less focused on focusing on a really specific demographic or segment of who is that specific rider. Instead, I want to solve a problem that we can solve for a really diverse group of people. That's well put. And and Oliver, the only thing I would add to that is, you know, you're absolutely right in terms of all the different problems to be solved, whether it's local or or urban transportation. And um, the thing is, they're not mutually exclusive, right? All the different problems. And I'll be the first to admit that we haven't solved 100% of them. But where we put our focus is kind of on the foundational pieces, which are how do we make an incredible vehicle and a lot of the things that uh, go into making an incredible vehicle aren't necessarily visible things that we are easy to put out as the, the shiny feature, but things like Ian touched on on quality uh, geometries that allow you to confidently ride 28 miles an hour and be able to smash into a pothole that you don't happen to see and still survive that and be able to do that year after year after year of ownership. And so things like that are where we've kind of put our initial focus. And yeah, a lot of it has trickled across from the innovation and the R&D on the performance side, but that's not to mean that's where we're going to stop. Yeah, yeah. The the point um, that you make in, uh, about, um, you know, the rider experience is in some ways determined, you know, you, let's put it this way. The, the fact that Van Moof have gone and developed all of this stuff and they, they did it in the Netherlands where a lot of the other aspects were solved. So they had bike lanes, they had infrastructure in place, they had all these other sort of things. You know, obviously that's a, and, and they had integrated, they had their, their town planning was, was done in a way that you would bike down to the train station, hop on the train and at the other end you'd be able to rent a bike and it was easy and all that sort of stuff. You know, that, that <laughs> it feels to me like there's a very big transition between that and like you guys in uh, the US predominantly building for, for US markets or, or whatever. Um, and the fact that, that there isn't that much setup. I'm curious, and we, we started talking about this just before we started recording, but um, when do we start to see the, the movement towards groups like yourselves, manufacturers uh, lobbying for better infrastructure? Because I, I feel like you're, you can only do so much with a vehicle if the infrastructure itself is not there, is not, is not well set up. Um, we saw it with the car and the sort of historical development of that. The, the car lobby ended up becoming quite strong and being able to lobby for things like the interstate system. Um, I think there's an opportunity that exists for shared and owned micromobility operators to kind of come together and say, we need to work out how to build out the global, uh, sorry, the, the, the sort of like the, the national network for, for all this stuff. Um, where do you see uh, specialized in that kind of conversation? Do you think that that will happen? Is there, is there something around the kind of unit economics of the bike or the business or anything like that that kind of stop us from doing that? Or are we up against, because I feel like we're up against a very significant challenge. You don't have that much money compared to a car company on the unit, unit scale size. Um, yeah, I'm, it's a sort of general question that I have for everybody in the industry, but uh, any thoughts in that, in that sector, either Chris or Ian? 
I, I've got plenty of thoughts. I don't, I don't want to hog all the airtime, though, Chris, if you want to go first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like we could spend an entire pot on, on this, actually. Um, but it's interesting, you know, for I think you're absolutely right. There, there's a lot of different factors that go into it. But one of the main ones is, is it culturally the right time? And it certainly feels like now is culturally the, the right time if there ever is going to be one in terms of the, the demand uh, in different markets and across the world for um, better infrastructure to support this. Um, and the only thing I'll say is it's kind of interesting um, being on the product side um, with the scale and global reach of our brand. And, and by the way, I think not a lot of people know this. Our business is actually pretty equally split uh, across Europe, Americas, um, and Asia, Latin America. So we're, we're pretty oh, like even oh, global footprint. Yeah. And so, so given that actually, and, and that's one of the, the great benefits of the specialized brand and um, we get approached a lot by different um, companies seeking partnership on the innovation and R&D side for uh, say, call it a technology showcase, if you will, or integration. And increasingly we're seeing the same thing happen on um, questions around uh, infrastructure and advocacy and things like that. And for us, it's a matter of being really careful to figure out what we can back and support that has um, the potential for the same magnitude of impact that we expect with our, our global footprint. And so I, I don't want that to be a cop-out answer, but it, it's one of those things where the moment is right, it feels right, and it certainly is from the amount of conversations that are happening right now on that front. Yeah, yeah, it's a, I think it's a great question, and it's one that I asked um, very early in my time at Specialized, because uh, I, I think plainly uh, that leadership has not been there, um, if I'm just being very you know critical of, of both ourselves and the industry at large. I mean, I don't think it's for, you know, I, I don't think that there's any malintent in that. I think it's, you know, been simply that companies are trying to, you know, run profitable businesses and have focused on really specific types of segments and they've seen um, you know less benefit in terms of going after the infrastructure and have focused more on creating sort of the groundswell of demand for better infrastructure through creating more riders and I think that the you know the answer is that we have to do both um, and I that's fully you know our intent is that you know we specialized uh, you know, works in partnership with Outride, a foundation um, that, you know, Mike started, which is really focused on sort of creating the next generation of riders. And so that's that's in addition to just the way that we run and operate our business. That's part of what we are doing is to help build this next generation of riders so that there is critical mass and demand for people who want to ride and want to ride everywhere. So that's like one part of the equation. The other part, though, is I, I do think we have to start coalescing, and it's happening to you know to some degree through organizations in the states like People for Bikes, which is an industry you know led uh, group, and you know that other big players participate in. And I think it's now time to sort of sharpen the focus and get much more clear about what it is that we we hope to achieve as a sort of group of people who have similar priorities and goals in this arena. Um, and I think. Much of that work right now has been left to sort of the hyper local and, you know, frankly, smaller <clears throat> voices in the room when it comes to, you know, advocating for that. Something that we also talked about, Oliver, is, you know, the need for really strong research and data to help to inform these discussions. And so, you know, a big part of what, you know, we've started already and, you know, Chris and I have worked together on some of this is to help to start funding, you know, the, the right kind of research that is going to give us the ammunition in these conversations when we do pull together as a bigger group of, of companies and people thinking about this that, that makes it much harder to, to argue against why you would do things like subsidize or incentivize the sale of a bicycle or an e-bike why you know why would you reward somebody for not using their private car why would you you know propose car free bridges why would you prioritize bike racks on buses or you know bike parking as a as a you know real focus you know i can go on and on right like we know these these solutions are not new and we've seen it done and you know you referenced you know the netherlands and there's other examples that we can find you know mostly in northern europe um, that do this really well but they are that way because people made them that way and i think one of the things that you know i have spent a lot of time thinking about and i think we spend a lot of time talking about right now 
especially in, you know, a sort of post-COVID-19 and current COVID-19 world is that, you know, we've really kind of reached this, this critical inflection point in this conversation where, you know, if we want to prevent new habits from form, forming, I call it a new habit, but, it, you know, like everybody jumping into their cars because they're afraid of being out in the world and being around other people. Totally. You know, yeah. like, I don't want to be in the bus yeah, or the train right? or I mean, whatever, so I'm going to take my car. Yeah, like that's yeah. a very real possibility that we see the prog- the relative progress that we've seen in cities and, you know, um, and in developing parts of the world, uh, you know, that we'd see that progress sort of backtrack. And I think it is incumbent on all of us or anybody who is spending, you know, time, money, effort, energy, thinking about how do we make active modes and micro modes and micro mobility um, a real part of this solution to this much bigger problem. Like, yes, we have to come together and we have to have those conversations. So to anybody listening, this is my open invitation to, you know, hit, hit me up and we can talk about it. And, <laughs> You know, we've had uh, some really, really great conversations. You know, we did like a, a program right after sort of the in the early days of, you know, when the pandemic was, was really hitting New York City hard. We worked on a program uh, around essential transportation for essential workers, which was really uh, working in partnership with um, organizations. We worked with one called Transportation Alternatives to, to match essential workers with a bike who needed to keep moving. And what we've seen is not only have we matched, you know, a lot of uh, of people with a bike, and it's proven to be this, you know, incredible resource for them, uh, but we've also seen state, city, and you know, even inching towards, you know, federal government uh, starting to reach out to to us as a major player and say, hey, this is actually potentially a real part of our plan going forward. How do we partner? How do we work with you? How do we do something at scale? Um, so, so that's been really encouraging. Excellent. So in addition to that, I'm curious in terms of how you foresee the business model of how bike miles are consumed, kind of going back to our point around disruptive innovation and how, you know, obviously we're seeing a still a large amount of growth in, in the sort of owned model. Um, I am kind of curious, uh, whether or not you think are we going to see any sort of specialized jump style bikes do you think that 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 might be a thing that we're going to see in the future that specialized would say we're not only going to be owned but actually we're going to work out how to have everybody consume our miles we're going to shift to a consumer facing brand that sort of uh, offers our bikes as a service even if it's not per se on the street but you know another way to do it would be you know having the bikes turn up or easily easily rentable um somewhere um is that something that you you think might be a, a kind of a natural outcome of your shift towards um new ways of new ways of consuming your products hmm i'll answer really quickly and i know you have a million thoughts so you can go but Mine's is um, we're we're open. We are absolutely not closed, and I love the way you talk about consuming miles and kilometers because that, that's really kind of the way we look at it too. Because our win is is not to just sell unit bikes forever. Like that's that's not really what the vision is, and um, we recognize that we have to be expansive in the way we think about how we get people to consume miles and kilometers on a bike. Um, the only caveat that I'll add to that it's not really a caveat. It's just what we focus on is. It's got to be a great experience because ultimately, if it's not, then we're just um, shifting the time until someone reverts back to, to old habits, as Ian was talking about before. And so with shared all the things about what makes it great for you, and it's a little bit different than, like, say, a shared car or anything else, where um, obviously the fit, as just one small example on a bike, is much, much more important. And so coming up with solutions to be able to handle things like that to us is incredibly important before we talk about anything like that yeah i'll I'll just say you know my experience at at lyft certainly opened my eyes to both the opportunities as well as the challenges of current you know shared models Um, and to your point oliver i think what we've seen to date isn't the end of that story, right? I think that it, you know, there's often this sort of question of like, is shared dead now? Well, no, like there's gonna be a lot of different ways that things are going to evolve, I think, you know, over over time here. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of models that I think haven't really been fully tried even yet. And so I think we, yeah, to to echo Chris's point, um, no, it is not the immediate focus, but 
are we open? Are we having those discussions internally? Do we think about it? Absolutely. And so I think that, you know, more, there's more to the story there <laughs> um, that, that we can't get into today, but, um, but no immediate plans, but certainly something that we think a lot about. Yeah, cool. Um, the, the, the final kind of part that I wanted to, and I'm aware we're kind of running up against time. So I, I, I wanted to just understand um, your supply chain. So, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, you, you, you are a fully kind of vertical player. And, and the one thing that I actually really, I want to say that I noted about your bikes was that you're, you've shifted from a rear hub into a mid drive with the, with the more recent bikes. Um, but the thing I love about it is that they're fully integrated into the frame and that, and that from a, just from a purely aesthetic perspective is very pleasing. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, as you think about it, what are the, you know, Horace and I had a, had a conversation uh, on, on a podcast very recently where you talked about in Taiwan, there's the golden book. And apparently that was the part where you could come along and you just pick out this components um, and that there's sort of this whole group of uh, t- uh, uh, component suppliers in Taiwan that, you, you know, you can just sort of assemble a bike. And as you sort of mentioned, that's how the traditional industry has worked. It's still in some ways like a bit of a mum and pop sector um, in terms of who's providing uh, uh, componentry into that. And we can see tier one and tier two auto suppliers wanting to get into belt and gearing and other things that they bring it. Um, do you see that one uh, that that's going to be beneficial for you guys or how are you thinking about that adjustment? And then two, um, sort of in a kind of a wider sense, um, how have you been thinking about building a supply chain that allow, that works for specialized um so that you can offer the sort of like big scale utility. I'm, I'm, I'm giving a full ownership experience similar to like a car um, rather than, yeah, I don't know, the, the, the more traditional kind of bike ownership experience because obviously things get a bit more complex with, um, with electric. Hmm. That, that's a really good question. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because you voice something that um, we've been talking uh, about for quite a long time in terms of um, our supply base and, and how we make something especially as it pertains to the e-bike side because it ends up that uh, as a brand in a way we're we're neither here nor there which is we're not the kind of traditional bike brand where to your point it's kind of like a spec exercise on a sheet and we're not automotive either but ironically we're, we're in a space now where the innovations that we're making we have the scale to and the complexity of the innovation certainly demands it where we're working with suppliers that are not at all traditional cycling Suppliers, they're more akin to consumer electronics and yes, even in the automotive space in terms of the components because of the complexities of, of the vehicle. And I think that's actually one of the um, unique advantages. I, I feel fortunate that, that we have the position to be in as a brand is, is we have the scale and also the innovation capability to be able to be partners in terms of development with these suppliers. And that's really the only way we're able to bring just, just even the thing that you're talking about sounds so simple, a mid-drive unit that has a completely custom housing to allow us to integrate it with the rest of the frame. That type of thing just doesn't happen with a traditional or hasn't happened with a traditional cycling supply base. And it wouldn't happen with a smaller player with an automotive supplier, say. I, I mean, one of the things just to use a really specific example, you know, is I, I think that setup that Chris just talked through is what gives us the flexibility to do things that we didn't maybe even necessarily plan on doing right away. And so by that, like the, the SL system that you mentioned before, we now have that lives across three different platforms. It lives in a road platform and a gravel platform mountain, and then on the sort of more fitness commute transportation platform in Novato. That whole and SL stands for super light. SL super light. Yeah, we which love acronyms, which I didn't understand. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, we're we're yeah, working yeah. on that. That's a cycling industry thing. <laughs> they were strictly strictly banned during my time at Tesla for that reason. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, you know, the SL, the super light system SL, um, you know, was really born out of uh, listening to the looking at the data and listening to our riders, um, you know, using the mission control app and sort of digital ecosystem that we have, you know, we've hun- we literally have, you know, hundreds of thousands of riders, millions of miles and trips logged. And looking at that, what we sort of learned was, huh, people don't actually use or want all of the power that's available to them all the time. 
that's really interesting. Let's go learn more about that. And when we went and learned more about that and you know, then started to think about, okay, what would, we, what would we do with that information? It was sort of a counterintuitive move within the industry to make something that is less powerful and then is now sort of you know, positioned as your new or even halo product in some categories, right? Like that's a weird kind of backwards notion. Um, but the timeline that it took us to turn that around, which is why really, you know, that's the only system that has the range, the weight, and the power, the combination of those that exists on the market today. That timeline to be able to turn that around is because of the kind of you know supplier setup and working relationship that we have uh, that Chris just mentioned before. And so I think that that's the kind of thing that you know um, is very exciting to me because we can do fast turns, but we can also recoup the cost of development because of the breadth of product lineup that we have that we can do things, um, I think, and you're going to start to see some of those pretty soon, uh, really quickly that, that people might not expect from us. Cool. Nice. Hey, look, well, I'm, I'm aware we're running up against time. So, I, ha- I had some extra questions about it. They will have to come on the next show. Uh, and uh, I really do hope to be able to get you back on again uh, at some point in the future because... Um, I, I, look, it's, it's been so interesting talking to you. I think you, as, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, you're, you're really, you've been around for a while. And I think um, as we've, I think we may, perhaps we've been slightly dismissive of incumbents who, who are in this space about how they're thinking about the electrification of the space. Um, so it's great to hear that uh, your perspective and that, and that you're obviously thinking about these things quite deeply. Um, if for folks who might want to find out more about uh, either of you, either of you on Twitter, just out of curiosity. Barely. I've been, you know, resisting mostly. Yeah, I, I am on. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm, how would I, I'm how Ian, would Kenny, find Ian Kenny 10, but I, 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 I read more than I tweet. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Nowadays, fair enough. nowadays same, same for me, but I am on it. And uh, I'm at uh, Chris U Inc. Chris U Inc. Excellent. Yeah. And, and for, fo- um, for folks who, who want to learn a bit more about, obviously, Specialized and the, and the product offerings there, it's just Specialized.com. Is that correct? Yeah, you got it. That's right. With a Z for anybody who's uh, English spelling. That's right. Uh, there we go. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, marvelous. Well, look, uh, thank you, guys. Really, really appreciate it and look forward to uh, having you on in the future. Yeah, thank you, awesome. Oliver. Thank you. And, and thanks to the team for all, all the work that you do. It's, um, it's, it's important and, yeah, happy to, to be on and look forward to talking to you again soon.